Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Hey, everybody. Uh, We got a a great one today. Now, this is a repeat. This is a repeat of, I think, one of our very, very, very best. uh, Ryan Bussey, who was uh, a big deal in the gun industry, uh, at a certain point had to kind of turn against the gun industry. And that's what this interview is about. He's from Montana, grew up with guns, grew up hunting with his his dad, uh, you know, like so many Minnesotans, and then went into the gun business and was kind of a hero in, in the gun business in many ways. He didn't make, uh, you know, AR-15s. He didn't make assault weapons. Uh, but uh, at a certain point, he broke broke with him, and uh, I th- you're just going to uh, really love this guy. That's why I want to uh, play this uh, this again. And, and part of the reason we're doing this is I, I've had COVID. By the time you hear this, I'll be fine. I'm, I'm certain of it. I'm, I'm on the mend as it is. I think I'm, I think I'm okay now. But uh, this one you are going to just love, you know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah. You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. Ryan is a guy who's worked in the gun industry until you're, you're, you're out of it now. Is that right? I'm out of it now, yep. Kind of forced out, would you say? Uh... Sadly, yeah, I think so. It's a, it's obviously a longer story. There's a book in there somewhere, but um, <laughs> the, the book in there somewhere is in front of me, and it's called Gunfight. Yeah, it's titled Gunfight: The Battle Against the Industry That Radicalized America, and that's what this book is about. And you were a champion. You were a hero in this industry at one point. Yeah, you know, I guess at one point 
it felt a little bit like to me, I tell the story of my childhood, and it's not much hyperbole to say I grew up with a shotgun in one hand and a rifle in the other. Um, I also grew up playing baseball, and I, I had a couple of dreams. I would have loved to have played Major League Baseball. That Sounds like you were probably a switch hitter. <laughs> Actually, no, I was a pitcher, but um, I, I get okay. your point. Um, and uh, that didn't come to fruition. But f- for rural kids like me who loved to hunt and fish in the outdoors, I loved uh, shooting guns with my father and my brother. Getting into the sporting goods firearms business was almost like getting into the major leagues. And, and I did that. And um, I got into the business. I was fortunate enough to help build up an iconic company into a very large, powerful company. And um, for quite some time, as you mentioned, um, it was it was kind of a dream job to me. And yes, I was nominated for some very for the largest, most prestigious awards in the industry. And and I had quite a few accomplishments, but um, also <laughs> ran up against some impediments. Yeah, I mean, we'll get into the Smith and Wesson story and the smart gun stuff in a little bit. You grew up like a lot of Minnesotans grew up, yeah, on a farm and a ranch and hunting and fishing with my father and brother. And mm-hmm. in part of my book, I think you you probably note I explain to readers who may not understand the cultural connection to guns. I think that flummoxes many people on the left. You know how can so many people, especially in flyover country, be so connected to guns and how can that be used in political ways? And I try to enumerate that in the first few chapters of my book, because like a lot of Minnesotans, many of the best times of people like me in, in our lives involve guns with our with our family or hunting or shooting or mm-hmm. whatever. And so there's a very powerful, almost religious cultural connection to these things, which can be very healthy. But when it's that powerful, it can also be used and twisted. Yeah, and you see sort of the move over the years toward it getting more and more twisted. And that's sort of the story of this book. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, and, and look, I, I grew up in suburban Minneapolis. I didn't go hunting. My dad didn't hunt. We, we, did, we did fishing, and that was something that I really cared about and great memories with my dad and although I, I did watch a lot of TV with them and, <laughs> yeah. and a lot of memories from watching comedians, which uh, had an effect on my, on my life and my career. Uh, but no, I, I uh, represented Minnesota, of course. You, you write about a, a pheasants forever here. And uh, I remember doing a pheasants forever event and telling them, uh, by the way, I just came from uh, feral pigs forever. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't realize that was catching fire, but uh, congratulations. No, I mean, I had really good relationships with the people who were outdoorsmen, mm-hmm. actually, mm-hmm. as opposed to people who uh, came with AR-15s to threaten the governor of Michigan. Yeah. I mean, those are those are quite different, and they kind of represent the transition here that you, that you talk about in your book, got from people who are really tied to nature and tied to hunting and tied to that culture and to family, and then there's the nutcases. <laughs> they they are nutcases. They are frightening. <laughs> we saw you know very frightening examples of these people on January sixth. That the group of people that stormed the Capitol, um, many of them did not look much different than some of the uh, NRA conventions that I've been to. Uh, sadly, uh, it, it, it was the same sort of emotion. But over the years. All of the people that you described, the pheasants forever types and the people for very valid reasons who uh, believe in and adhere to reasonable self-defense have been told that they must be one with all of these crazies, that we must all stand together, that we must respect all gun owners, that frankly, all of these gun owners are more important and more um, (laughs) more salient to the democracy than somebody like a Democratic senator from Minnesota. In other words, you you or people like you became more dangerous to these people than the people who are trying to overthrow democracy. That's and that's one of the themes in the book. That's how far afield reasonable gun ownership has gotten and I think I think there's a lot of people certainly in my childhood and in my world now and I, I'm quite sure in Minnesota that just aren't down with that. <laughs> just don't believe. Oh that. yeah. 
uh, my voting record, of course, um, would not make the NRA or didn't make the NRA happy, and that was fine. And and one chapter of of, of your book is about uh, your recommending that the uh, NRA in in Montana not make an endorsement in th- that Senate race. John Tester is a good guy, and uh, uh, you know a down to earth guy who you know you can kind of trust on on stuff. And they got very mad at you. <laughs> yeah, he voted. Uh, he voted for uh, Mansion Toomey, which was after after Sandy Hook. That was just an attempt to get some meaningful safeguards on gun show buys. Yeah, and and you know who really I don't understand the objection to that. I I would think that people who sell guns at like your guns, uh, Kimber guns, uh, which are high quality guns uh, in in uh, retail and stores would want these safeguards on gun shows so that people aren't buying them at gun shows and they're not buying them, uh, the criminals aren't buying them to use them in bad ways. Well, so that makes two of us. Um, you're absolutely correct. And the, the reason, so that whole mention to me story is, is a, it plays a central role in, in, in at least one chapter in my book. Um, it's a pivotal, and, kind of a pivotal role because that's the point at which you're beginning to separate from these these guys. The NRA also Jim Baker looks really bad in this. I think Jim though at least acknowledged the reality, and there's a couple of quotes which I, I can still see him standing in the aisle of the NRA show, looking him in the eye, saying, "I told these guys if we ever become a bought and paid for wing of the Republican Party, we're fucked." And I looked at him, I said, "Well, Jim." You're fucked. Yeah, and and you helped that happen, by the way, Jim. So yeah, you know, Mansion Toomey was not about policy. Oddly enough, it was to Tester, it was to, to to many senators, and the NSSF, the Industry Trade Group, knew that it was about good policy. That's why initially they signaled support for it. So the industry was actually going to support this, but in proof that the NRA runs the gun industry and sadly runs far too much of DC. As soon as Chris Cox and Jim Baker decided that they were going to score it, meaning they were going to use this possible decent policy, you know, a very, very modest improvement in policy. Let's be honest. I mean, this is not earth shattering. They were going to use that to scar Democrats and a few Republicans instead of uh, advancing policy. Why don't you explain scoring a vote? The NRA uh, famous for maintaining a scorecard. And um, if you're a, a senator, representative, governor, whatever and you're wishing for NRA support and the voter support, you want the highest possible score from the NRA. Well, the way the NRA enumerates or tallies that score is to pick legislative or judicial votes and score them. And over the years, they went from, you know, trying to at least appear as if these had something to do with policy to just being strictly (laughs) political. So as soon as they figured out wedge issues, and in this one, Manchin Toomey was a great one, they they soon realized like, wait a second, Democrats are in a box on this. A couple Republicans that we want to twist up are in a box. So rather than let this go, we'll score it. And by that, they meant if you voted the wrong way, you got a very bad score from your on your NRA scorecard. And if you voted the right way, meaning the way they wanted you to vote, you got a high score. So basically, they sent the message out in the next election. If you don't vote the way we want on Mansion Toomey, just so you know, you're not going to have an A plus from the NRA. So it was really power and politics and not policy. Exactly. It's about it's about power, money and politics. And if you haven't noticed in the last year or so, the way the NRA uses and um, <laughs> is in a very high degree of need for money has come to the fore given Wayne's um, suits and yachts and uh, everything else. So my five-year-old grandson who lives in the Upper West Side of Manhattan got a uh, a piece of mail uh, asking him to join the NRA uh, a few months ago, which I thought was like, wait a minute. Um, That seems like a waste. That seems like bad marketing because He's a five-year-old kid. He lives on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. <laughs> well, do, do you have any kind of market research that you do? Because that's not a very high likelihood. 
I, I don't know why, but they cast a very broad net. Well, they're out of money, aren't they? Aren't they out of money? You know, I, I think they're probably struggling compared to um, the coffers that they used to live off of. But kind of the through line of the book is that there's a direct line from the way the NRA developed toxic gun politics to the way Trump and the right um, perfected that same kind of toxic politics in our country. And the, the through line for me here is, is that we can say that Trump is gone. We can think that Trump didn't get elected, but Trumpism certainly did not go away. And I think uh, the same thing is happening with the NRA. Even if the NRA is weakened financially and in the minds of, you know, from a PR standpoint, the, the political brush fire did not go away. You know, what's interesting in the book, you point out that they feel that Democrats getting elected president is good for guns, right? Hugely good for gun sales, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so they're kind of hoping in the gun industry, at least in the gun industry, that a, a Democrat will get elected so that people will go out and buy guns. Like, if you made up Saturday Night Live skits that were this crazy, they would probably not be believed. But everybody in the, in the firearms industry with a religious certainty convinces themselves that Democrats are the worst thing for humanity. And then as soon as a Democrat is elected, gun sales spike and the best business times of, of the industry come from Democrats. That is, unless it's Donald Trump who figures out a way to light half of the country on fire and scare everybody so they have to buy guns. That's the one exception. You said if you write um, SNL sketches, I wrote, Charlton Heston was the host on the show. And it was right during the uh, the Brady Bill had passed. Part of that was a seven day waiting period, right? Yeah. In other words, you had a, you couldn't go into to a gun store and buy a gun and take it home. You had to wait seven days during the background check, et cetera. So uh, Heston is hosting the show, and I write a piece which is the NRA loaner program that they will loan you a gun <laughs> for seven days. <laughs> So I, I write this, and it's all him lovingly describing these different guns that they'll lend you. We do it in read-through, and then I go home after read-through, and there's a, traditionally a meeting with, with Lorne and, and the host. And I get a call, and he said, well, Charlton wants to talk to you about this piece. And I'm going, oh, boy. And he, and when I get back there the next day in the morning, I go to the dressing room and he goes like, all he wants to do is more lovingly describe <laughs> the guns. <laughs> and so you, you didn't have enough hyperbole in there. I got it. Well, it, what's weird about it was he totally, totally, totally got the joke. And the joke was, it's just how awful the NRA kind of in a way was we we will make sure that you can shoot someone in the next seven days if you need yeah to. so he'll and, he, he leaned in and 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 yet I gotta say he made it funnier very much he knew these guns mm -hmm. and he also sort of had a little bit of a, a poetry to the way he described them and it was kind of like, okay, okay. And I kind of admired him for it, oddly. Um, you know, he he was head of the NRA and you yeah. know, led during a period where they were terrible. Yeah, I, you know, I lived through that and there was no, he was revered as a god, you know. I mean, it, I mean, well, people, the seas literally yeah. parted for the guy when he, when Moses walked down the aisle. Yeah. And, and didn't he replace someone at some point where they just said, we need Moses yeah, we have Marion right Hammer, have um, who is famous, still famous in Florida political circles. She was the driving force behind the Stand Your Ground law, the law right. that was used to defend the shooter of Trayvon Martin. Yeah. Um, but she was president of the NRA prior to Charlton. And she's very, very good friends with Wayne LaPierre. And when when Heston's name oh. popped into the to the ethos, they both realized holy shit, this is star power. This is Moses. And so she stepped aside. Heston became president and he became president not long before the Columbine massacre. Columbine was the start of a, of a sea change in, in the country in terms of the view of, of guns. I think so. You know, when you're living inside those sorts of changes, it's, it's tough to know how the change is occurring only with retrospect 
um, do you, do you get the kind of view where you can say these things? But tell me how they spin the shit. So in other words, there's a lot of the only thing that can, this is after Sandy hook, of course, the only thing that can be the bad man with a gun is a good man with a gun or something like that. Yeah. What's the, the good guy with a the gun theory. Yeah. 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 The good guy. And what, what was the, uh, uh, Columbine answer? Well, not long after Columbine, Heston's famous stand on stage with the musket and cold dead hands um, mm-hmm. statement. That's it, it came not long after it came at the, the next convention after Columbine. And for those that don't remember the NRA convention, the year of Columbine was to be held in Denver and Columbine happened just about 10 days before that NRA convention. Then the NRA cancels most of the public convention, the big part that everybody sees on TV with all the manufacturers like us down on the floor. And they just held their business meetings um, in the Adams Mark Hotel in Denver. Outside, there were about between seven and 8,000 protesters in Denver protesting then. And Heston's PR plan, PR play then, was to essentially say, you're making gun owners out to be the bad guys, and we will not be the bad guys. We, we are the people who you know, form the backbone of this country, and you need to focus on the bad guys. I don't know. I, I guess it worked for, for a brief amount of time, but then over the years, after the various shootings, LaPierre realized that each shooting represented a PR opportunity to ratchet up the political pressure cooker in the United States. And so by the time Sandy Hook happened, they waited about a week. And then LaPierre defiantly marches to the microphone and says, essentially, he called for two things. Only a good guy with a gun can stop a bad guy with a gun. That was one thing. And then if I note in the book, a very interesting part of his speech was he called for the formation of amateur militias oh, that's made, right. up, yeah. made up of the same sort of people that you saw on January 6th. And he praised them. He basically said, we need these roving armed militias to keep armed people away from schools. Um, right. And that and is in schools. So what you want need is more people with guns in schools. Correct. Yeah, correct. You know, you show a couple people that work for you that you wouldn't want with a gun in the school. Well, I try to be honest about, yeah, I mean, and what you're referencing is that, look, I lived at a gun company at a time when, and when the industry was rapidly changing and when it was also growing to have immense, if not the most political influence of, of any lobby or any industry in the United States, maybe in the history of the United States, um, perhaps maybe save the oil industry. And I think a lot of people had this perception that we were these <laughs> button-down military academy, uh, professional suit-wearing, you know, ties tight kind of people. But that's not the sort of people. Yeah, that I did not have that industry. impression. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, I would. I actually went to after Sandy Hook. I went around to. We had an AR-15 manufacturer in our state that hired a lot of veterans and. What was interesting about them is they manufactured these AR-15s, and I was kind of going like, okay, uh, why do we need these? And also, why do you need these high-capacity clips? And these guys were going, you don't. And a guy who can't bring down a deer in seven <laughs> seven shots, there's no business out there. And that was their their big thing, was just our AR-15s are okay. but. The defense of these assault weapons is just insane. And the first time I met Ted Cruz, can I tell a little story? Oh, I'd love I love Ted Cruz stories. He's he's such a he's such a commendable figure and I and I actually greatly revere all of your other Ted Cruz quotes. So let's have another one. <laughs> well, yeah, one of my Ted Cruz quotes is that I probably like Ted Cruz more than most of my <laughs> colleagues like Ted Cruz and I hate Ted Cruz. <laughs> exactly. That's and, it's one but of my anyway, <laughs> The first time I meet him, okay, he gets elected in November of uh, 12. And Sandy Hook happens a little over a month later. And as you talk about Sandy Hook there and the uh, president's reaction, President Obama's reaction, it's the worst day of his presidency. It's, and, and you talk about Tester meeting the families. I met the families. So I'm a sponsor a co-sponsor of the Assault Evans Band. So uh, Ted wins in November. He isn't seated until January 3rd. He comes up to me, first day on the floor, 
doesn't introduce himself. He just comes right up to me and says, anybody who's for the assault weapons ban is engaged in sophistry. Mm-hmm. Okay, now sophistry is an SAT word for 99% of Americans, and I only know it because I studied for the vocabulary for the SAT. <laughs> and it is a, uh, you know, deliberately using a fallacious argument uh, in order to deceive. So I say, uh-huh, Ted, uh, how am I in- engaged in sophistry? And he says, well, Clinton's own 1996 Justice Department report said it didn't work. And as you write about in the book, there was an assault weapons ban passed in 94, and it expired, unfortunately, in 2004. That's correct. So we had had it, and then, then we had this gap in it. So I said, no, it didn't. It didn't say it didn't work. It actually said that it looked like it worked, that gun violence went down 6% in the preceding year after the adoption of the assault weapons ban, but that it wasn't statistically significant enough to draw a conclusion. And he gets mad at me. Well, you just you just read the report. I go, okay. And I go back to my office. I get my legal counsel. I tell him what he says. And he says, no, it doesn't. I go, I know what it says. Get the report. Get the language. Make a one-pager out of it. I'll just keep it in my suit pocket. And uh, when I see Ted next, I'll bring it out. So the next day I see him, I see him on the floor, and I say, oh, Ted, uh, yesterday uh, you said to me that anyone who's for the assault weapons ban is engaged in sophistry. And he said, no, I didn't. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> he's, he's, he's such a lovable fellow, you know? And then we had hearings on it, and he said the same lie again. He said that. He's just, his, his go-to is lying. It, it's yeah. amazing. It's like Cancun. Yeah, I was just dropping the girls off. He's just not quite as good at it as Trump is. That's the thing. Well, well that, that's a high bar. Come on. Yes, it really is. But this is, this is like what we're up against. Um, it, it's just that willingness to say anything. You know the uh, physical attributes of assault weapons. and what, What's the thing you hold on to in the front? I mean, you talk about the, the weapon that, what was the name of the, the kid, Adam the 20-year-old? Uh, yeah, Adam. Adam. Yeah. Talk about that weapon for a second. First off, it should be noted that uh, prior to the assault weapons ban, and, and assault Assault weapons, like many people think of assault weapons, AR-15s were never really banned. Um, you could still buy AR-15s during the 10 years of the assault weapon. The definition of assault weapon came to be known as that style of rifle, that style of guns, with at least two um, of these long list of add-on features, including things like folding stocks and you know forward grips and uh, grenade launchers and things of this sort. So it was basically tacking on accessories that made the gun Uh, into an assault weapon. Now, prior to the assault weapons ban, not many of these guns were sold. Um, Not many companies made them. Um, They were made primarily for law enforcement and military. After the assault weapons ban, the market exploded and there were as many as 500 separate companies, essentially all making the same gun. Now think of this in car terms. It was as if all of these car companies made almost exactly the same car. And the only way to gain advantage on your competitors would be to to do two things, either market the gun in such a way that got you lots of attention and or to add and improve features on the gun that would essentially make it more lethal. You're, make it, you're taking a gun that was designed to be offensively lethal for the military, that's what it's for, and then applying modern manufacturing techniques and engineering to make it ever more lethal. Um, and so the gun that Lanza used was a Bushmaster E15 XM E2 Shorty AK. Those are all the acronyms. And it had been continuously improved by all of these 500 companies because everybody- By improved, sw- you mean more lethal, more lethal, more yes. lethal. Yeah, the only way to improve the platform was to make it function better. And by functioning better, it meant more lethal. It shot faster. It shot more reliably. It allowed the shooter to hold on the target longer. Because the essence of the gun is that it's an offensive killing machine. And it was made actually for close combat, right? 
Yeah, so Lanza's gun, interestingly enough, was uh, an AR-15 that was modified for close, confined combat. It was sh- it had a shortened stock, it had a shortened barrel, and it even had an AK-style muzzle brake, which meant that there's there's something called muzzle rise. When you shoot very rapidly, the recoil of the gun lifts the muzzle up, and it's hard to keep it on a target. So the, there was a muzzle brake incorporated on that gun to allow it to stay on target. And all of these attributes, air quotes here, attributes were added to the gun over time to make the gun more lethal, essentially for military and police. But in this twisted world, we marketed them to people who really shouldn't have had them like Lanza. And famously, that particular gun was marketed by Bushmaster with the now infamous ad that said, get your man card back. It just said, get your man card back and had a picture of this AR-15. A few months later, Lanza walks into a grade school with a gun that was designed for close quarter combat and kills innocent little first graders and their teachers with that gun. Now, there had been an assault weapons ban uh, from uh, 1994. It was passed in 94 to uh, 2004. And then uh, this development of all these uh, super lethal uh, assault weapons happened after the law expired in 2004, and that was uh, because Bush just didn't sign the extension of it. Is that right? Yeah, Bush didn't sign the bill in 2004, so it expired. So that sunset uh, provision expired. Soon after that, an explosion of manufacturing and continuous improvement started. So you took what was this basic offensive military gun, and then the consumerism of the United States took over and 500 companies dove in to making this gun. And the only way for them to garner attention and traction in the market was to make it ever more lethal and market it in ever more aggressive ways. And both of those things came to the fore in Lanza's rifle in Sandy Hook. I remember during the hearings, Cruz held up a forward grip. He goes, look at this. This is nothing. This is just a piece of plastic. Really? True. True. Yeah. Um, that was his point, though. And I'm, I'm going like, Jesus, man. I mean, this is, this is why palpable hatred of this guy exists. You know, I mean, Lindsey Graham said that if someone murdered Ted Cruz, <laughs> <laughs> that he would not, and the trial was in the Senate, no, he, that person would not be convicted. It'd be unanimous. I think we have seen that there's a lot of things that won't be convicted in the Senate. But yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, including. Uh, yeah, plotting the overthrow of, of the most powerful democracy. But I think of how close that outcome actually was in the nation's capital. Like I, I, I was a part of and I write in the book about me, my family confronting these armed militia people months before the same sorts of people yes, invaded yeah. the capital. It felt to me as if matches were being waved over open gasoline and at any second it was going to explode into something that was just so unbelievably horrific that I don't know how to describe it. Now, what happened on January 6th was unbelievably horrific, but it still felt to me like that match and that gas were they to come just a little closer together, like the ship could have got really, they, really They were a minute or two away from killing members of Congress, I think, I think. I mean, that was closer than we ever want to know. And and then to hear the, the police who testified, the four policemen who testified, the restraint that they used, because they, they could have shot these guys and, uh, and put an end to it. The result of that would have been also, it would just escalated everything and, and wouldn't have done us any, it would, would have been very harmful. So they, they yeah. demonstrated just a tremendous amount of restraint, and those guys are heroes. And these guys exist. This is uh, these nuts, and and they were created in in no small part by the gun industry. I think it's very important for readers and listeners to note that that those January sixth insurrectionists essentially carried two types of messages on their flags or on their clothes or on their hats or whatever. Obviously, there was the Trump and the MAGA flags. We saw lots of those. Then the other sorts of flags and hats and logo paraphernalia, it it wasn't Nike. 
It wasn't their barbecue grills. It wasn't their favorite truck. It wasn't their favorite sports team. They were guns. Okay. There were come and take it flags, which is an adaptation of this Texas fable about the battle of the Alamo and the, uh, surrounding a cannon saying, come and take it. So that's why when you see these come and take it flags, those flags have replaced the cannon from the Texas lore and have now superimposed the silhouette of an AR-15 onto those flags. You also saw the, the guy who was, they call him zip tie guy, but the guy who was running through the Senate uh, chambers trying to find senators to zip tie had a Black Rifle Coffee hat on. And Black Rifle Coffee is a, uh, a coffee company that sprung up that uses uh, AR-15s as its central organizing marketing campaign and has built this kind of faux patriotic machismo thing in and around coffee and the intimidation of the AR-15 on hats and t-shirts and everything else so that when you walk into your church barbecue or your little league, your kid's little league game or your nation's capital, you're letting everyone know that, hey, I have a black rifle, meaning an AR-15, and I can kill the shit out of you if you look at me sideways. So our nation has gone so far in a bad way since the early mid-90s. Now, ARs, AR-15s, and this intimidation are a central organizing factor of the far right, and um, it, it's frightening. And at Camp Auschwitz, um, shirt as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, white supremacy obviously is a, um, you know, the whole 6 million wasn't enough, which is one of the guys wore proudly and displayed for, for all the cameras. Yeah. Um, this white supremacy hatred is just a byproduct of this far right radicalization. Let's, let's face it. It's early stage fascism. That's, that's what's going on here. And guns are, are sadly, the gun industry has allowed guns to be a central organizing factor in this. And it doesn't need to be that way. It just doesn't need to. It's a purposeful thing, but it, it doesn't need to be that way. And now we have, you know, 70% of the Republican Party believing that the election was stolen in some way. I don't know how they, well, we have all this disinformation on social media and on Fox and all over the place. And then you have these state legislatures passing new election laws where state legislators uh, can overturn the result of an election. This is mm -hmm. incredibly dangerous. It's frightening. We're in a, a, a struggle here for our very yes. democracy. It's an existential threat. Yes, I believe that. When Trumpism <laughs> invaded our country, I really was not that surprised. Um, a lot of people were. I was surprised that he won the election because like a lot of people, I, I didn't think that, that he could possibly win an election. So I was surprised from that standpoint, but I wasn't surprised at Trumpism. And the reason is the through line of the book is that, the, it, that this whole thing was developed by the NRA and by the firearms industry and handed off to Trump and the far right. And I note many of the parallels in the vernacular of Trump and the approach of Trump and the way the far right polices any sort of dissent. I mean, if you haven't noticed, there are only two things you can be about Trump, 100% for him or zero. Like there is nobody that is allowed to be 99% Trump. They, they excommunicate them. And that's the way the firearms industry has been for some time. You could either be 100% pro-gun or zero. You could never utter any sort of dissent or thought um, as I tried to do. Yeah, that's where you um, you fell. Yeah. And, and uh, so when this whole thing happened, it really didn't shock me. I felt like I had been living in the lab where this was developed for 15 years. And the craziness that is out there now, this QAnon craziness that we all <laughs> partially fear and partially make fun of, you know, Hillary Clinton has sex slaves in a pizza parlor, for God's sake. Um, that it really began with the NRA too. LaPierre would say things like, Barack Obama is going to rewrite the Constitution. Really? I, I had no idea a president could rewrite the Constitution. He said Barack Obama is going to outlaw hunting ammunition. They said mm -hmm. all of these incendiary, hyperbolic, insane things. And I was in the industry and I looked around and holy shit, people were believing them. <laughs> like, And to me, that's where QAnon started. Like the willingness of people to believe this outlandish conspiracy theory to me has its roots in the NRA. Okay, uh, we, we have to we have to break for a commercial, and uh, here it is.
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. What was their relationship with NRA and evangelicals? I think that um, the NRA and evangelicals through Newt Gingrich realized that i i mean i hate to use this it, it sounds sounds a bit trite but um you know it's an unholy alliance right um the the same sort of religious devotion that exists in fact warren cassidy the executive vice president of the nra prior to wayne lapierre i have his quote in, in my book and i might butcher it a little bit but he essentially says you would get a lot better understanding of the national rifle association if you looked at us as one of the world's great religions, that was his direct quote. And I think if you assess the way NRA operates and the way people are devoted to it, it is very much like a religion. And so that zero sum, 100% religious devotion, die for the cause thing, I think that Gingrich and the forces on the right and LaPierre realized that intertwining these was a very good idea. And that's why I never went to an NRA convention or a high-level NRA meeting where prayer was not offered to open the meeting. Even in huge, you know, high-level fundraising events, always somebody got up to essentially pray for the NRA and for people like Trump to be elected. So there was a, a very tight um, sort of flag, Bible, guns, patriotism, interwovenness. In the and, and then even Obama kind of stumbled by saying in, I think at some event in San Francisco, probably a fundraiser, they cling to their guns and their religion, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think Obama probably regrettably and inartfully expressed something that um, he probably wished he wouldn't have. It, it, it probably cost him a few points in the polls and was used relentlessly by the right in the campaign. But I think that he, the, the truth of what he said in San Francisco, there's certainly merit in that. And we see it across flyover country, red states now. There is guns, religion, and this sort of just ferocity are all inextricably linked. And uh, uh, racial animus. Sadly, yeah. Um, I'm not sure how racial hatred is supposed to tie into Christianity. That's not the that's not the sort of Christianity I was brought up with in in a rural flyover America. But it but it certainly seems to have taken an outsized influence now. Flyover country always, you know. I, I grew up in Minnesota, and I just you know if a plane took off in Milwaukee and landed in Sioux <laughs> Falls, I didn't go like look up in the sky and go, damn you for flying <laughs> over us. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I didn't think of Minnesota's flyover country. I just thought of it as, as Minnesota. Um, I thought. Well, as, as I do too, because I grew up, um, I grew up in the ultimate flyover country, square in the middle of the country with jets crisscrossing the, the airspace all the time. I never once looked up and thought, oh, you elites flying from one coast to the other. May, may you perish before you land. I, I never, it, that was not yeah, in Yeah, they're, they're going from 
Bismarck to, you know, Kalispar or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, this is this is a great read and, and unbelievable insight into to the NRA and to this this horrific movement from an organization that you know once was about gun safety and you know teaching people how to use guns responsibly and embracing uh, traditions like hunting and uh, and went to just to Nutsville. Yeah, you know I write about in the book about my grandfather who was a proud Roosevelt Democrat, FDR Democrat. Um, his favorite hat that he wore to church barbecues and um, high school football games to watch me play was that big gold lettered NRA hat. And to him, the NRA meant something far different than what it means to us today. It didn't mean the existential threat to democracy. It just meant camaraderie and responsibility and um, love of his old model 37 Winchester Remington so he could go pheasant hunting once in a while. Man, how things have shifted from there. Yeah. And then in LaPierre now, didn't, didn't they, uh, <laughs> there's some graph there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think there's, I think it's been reported that there's a, a wee bit of corruption uh, wee has bit happening, has a graph happening in, in far off Fairfax, Virginia. <laughs> um, you know, we saw that those of us who were inside the, the business for a well, long nobody's time. perfect, you know, uh, Wayne LaPierre. <laughs> I mean, well, he's cer certainly not perfect. We would joke. I, I said, are you um, got to experience, I'm sure, um, many events with high level diplomats and people in D.C. arriving with security and armored cars and blah, blah, blah. When we would go to the NRA would hold its conventions in many places, um, many, you know, maybe Minneapolis or Louisville or Houston or all these cities. I, I think I went to 27 of them uh, in my career. And when people like Chris Cox and LaPierre would show up. It was as if a head of state from a very powerful Western European country was showing up and a long line of armored black suburbans and security guys with the curly security wires in their ears would get out. I mean, wow, I actually didn't see that a lot. I mean, if if the ambassador from Germany showed up, it was like in a nice car in a, like a black suburban. And I'm sure he might have had somebody with him that. At something, but I, so that's, I, I, I just, it's just an example <laughs> of the seriousness with which these, the, the, the overinflated self-seriousness with which these people took themselves, that they would pay for, use the membership dues of people that were, you know, people who couldn't afford to buy a suburban themselves. But, but these people in every city were renting these suburbans and paying these unbelievable security forces to protect them as if they were heads of state. And I just thought, what kind of twisted world are you people in? I, I remember this, that they stayed on yachts when there was controversies by saying, like, we're in danger. People are after yes. us, so we need to stay on a luxury yacht now for a couple months yeah. to lay low. <laughs> after after uh, Parkland happened, yeah, um, it's been reported and uh, seemingly sounds like it's been verified. But after Parkland happened, LaPierre... Uh, between shopping for new houses in Dallas that the NRA was going to buy him, um, was so exasperated with the social angst in the United States and the, the proper that he and his wife thought just to escape the potential danger of this place that was in an uproar over these kids being killed, he needed to go to a large funder's yacht for, I think, you know, I don't know how many weeks, just so he could, you know, regain his, you know, recenter, um, sort of do a little yoga down there. I don't know. I doubt that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't see Wayne Lapierre doing yoga for some reason. Yeah, yeah, but that again, the the seriousness, the sort of overinflated importance that these people assign to themselves is very religious esque. You know. So what is he doing now? I mean, I, I he's still he's still he's still executive vice president. Really? Yeah. I thought that yep. was discrediting the yacht stuff. 
Uh, per, uh, apparently, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you noticed this, but combined with bankruptcy. <laughs> yeah. On the right these days, there isn't much you can do as a high level leader to detach yourself from your loyal troops. I don't, I don't know if you've yeah. seen this yeah. any, anywhere I, else, but I, it seems to be I a trend. Have. Yeah. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Yeah. He's still there. And I think, and if you, not that I uh, encourage you to do this, but if you were to go online and look and read through these blogs, again, please don't just try to hold your sanity in place. But if you do, you'll see people um, still defending him a- a- as if he is the Pope. Just like he's been attacked by the left wing media. He deserves nice suits. My gosh, what he's done for us. He should be on a yacht once in a while. Pray for Wayne. He should have special meals prepared for him. Correct. Yeah. 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 He's done staff. so much for us. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, massages, correct. I, I think that I think the massage is much more likely than the yoga. <laughs> yes, I don't. I really don't want to go there. I, I hate. I know. The, I, the know I know. This, I know. I, I I started thinking about that too. Yeah, let's, let's just not do that. <laughs> well, well, thanks. Congratulations on this book. Really appreciate. Honored that you read it and appreciated it. I know you lived through and are still living through most of it, as we all are. And um, really a big honor for me to be on your podcast and uh, for you to say nice things about the book. So thank you. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. When you're committed to raising the standard, you're bound to ruffle some feathers. At Happy Egg, we like to say we farm differently. But in reality, we produce eggs the way people used to, by partnering with local small family farmers who raise our happy hens on eight or more acres. Because in our opinion, farming shouldn't be complicated. It should be happy. Choose happy with Happy Egg. Visit happyegg.com and look for the yellow carton at a store near you. Happy Egg. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.